I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. We're opening with Less by the composer and violist Lev Zhurban, a Moscow emigre from the album... <laughs> Freez freezing up on that one. Nemosyne. <laughs> You'd think I would have practiced that. Performed by uh, his ensemble. Again, I'm going to freeze. Lova and the Contraband. That's good practice. Today's show is With Ears to Hear, Voices Against the Heroic, and my guest is Cynthia Wolfe, writer, producer, editor, and audio of audio presentations of fiction and nonfiction work and leader of the Cricket's Bone Caravan. Would you call yourself leader of the Cricket's Bone Caravan? Producer. Cricket's Bone Producer, okay. Uh, she joins us to discuss her award-winning audio program, Nuclear Nightingales, which consists of readings from the oral history Voices from Chernobyl by 2015 Nobel laureate Svetlana Alexievich with the troupe of local readers, Cricket's Bone Caravan. Wolf and company produce stories, literary and historical with national, global, and collective significance. A shorter edit of Nuclear Nightingales was recently declared platinum, listening at the Here Now Festival of Audio Arts, which took place in Kansas City, Missouri le this year, right? This year. This year. Uh, Nuclear Nightingales aired in two parts on WFIU's program Anthology last August. Part two makes use of Svetlana Alexievich's Voices of Chernobyl. Cynthia will fill us in on this production and much else in the show. And the special treat here tonight is that we'll be hearing the winning entry in our second segment. Cynthia Wolf, welcome to Interchange. Thanks for having me, Doug. It's nice to be back at WFHB. Well, Cynthia, you and I know each other. We've worked together before uh, on Books Unbound, a program here at WFHB. Uh, this is where you began to do this kind of work, yeah? That's right, and I think I never would have learned to do it if it hadn't been for your support and help. <laughs> well, uh, that, well, sure, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the, um, uh, our approach to literature really grew out of the uh, Books Unbound concept of representing banned books originally. Uh, mm -hmm. Originally, uh, they read mainly novels that at some point in their publishing history had been banned. Uh, when I um, started working with the program, uh, one of the goals was to get more voices involved. And when you were reading a novel that, uh, that might take you three months to read, that was hard to do. So we started reading other forms, poetry, short stories, uh, really, the first episode I produced was um, Storytellers of Immortality mm -hmm. uh, for Day of the Imprisoned Writer, which featured something like 18 contemporary international poets in translation, read by uh, 12 local voices, um, uh, all of whom were either imprisoned or in exile, writing from exile or under occupation. That's uh, where I was introduced to Liu Xiaobo, who recently um, died after several years in Chinese custody, the uh, Nobel laureate. And we're going to return to that, I think, at the end of the mm -hmm, mm -hmm. segment. So uh, you, like you say, you, you started out here and, and immediately dove into uh, multiple voices in, in your work as, mm -hmm. a, as a producer and editor. And editing is a big part of what you do in this, in this production process. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'm not really an on-air kind of person, and uh, as I was saying before we started, I'm totally petrified <laughs> to be doing this. Um, <laughs> I sit there like a, in a chemistry lab putting things together. Yeah, I, I love editing. To me, I, uh, I was an editor uh, of text, and those skills are transferable. It's about how things come together. And to me, that's an important metaphor for what we do, in fact, is how you bring 
bring all the pieces together in a, in a world that's pretty broken and messed up most of the time. Mm-hmm. Well, as an editor, that's an interesting um, uh, perspective or position to have, you know, in doing interchange also, especially the pre-recorded interchanges, we definitely have things in mind as we proceed, right? So mm-hmm. even if a show, uh, it, and when you record it and you have a conversation with somebody that can get uh, go in certain directions, but then you put it together to make it be in a particular <laughs> direction that the conversation, not, not that you're not trying to be true to the conversation, yeah. but you do have uh, a, a kind of uh, authorial hand in there as editor as well. Surprises happened, and after we listened to the festival version of uh, Voices from Chernobyl, we can uh, talk more about what I learned about Alexievich's technique actually from boiling that down to a shorter program. Um, Another uh, another episode we had done on Books on Bound that was um, about putting the fragments together was Killing Voltaire, which, Mm -hmm. as you know, uh, won a... Uh, Indiana Society of Professional Journalists Award for um, radio documentary or special. And we uh, had uh, uh, done a second version of that after the uh, uh, Paris Stadium attack, November 13th, mm-hmm. and incorporated some sound from that. So again, bringing, bringing those pieces together mm-hmm. uh, to tell the story differently. You know, it's uh, uh, an interesting long form, which um, is different than kind of listening to what I would call uh, the a lot of what uh, is um, these kind of nonfiction narrative things you hear all the time now. Obviously, the um, uh, I guess the This American Life format of, mm-hmm. of nonfiction narrative that you know puts you into kind of an identification with the producer themselves or with the people. Uh, they talk to, but generally you are the producer in in that listening in some sense. You try to identify with it. That's not what you do. That's a good point. That's a good point. And I would contrast it also what we do to um, to audio books, um, which is just the text represented by a voice. Uh, I mean, we're, we're we try to represent voices that are challenging, provocative, even unsettling or disturbing. Um, but the voice actors, um, the voice cast that I have to work with, and I'm so fortunate to work with, uh, it's not traditional radio theater either. It's not creating um, exaggerated characters or fabricating an accent. And at the same time, you can't really say it's completely transparent either. But it's a real interaction of the voice with the subject matter. Um, and, I, and I hope... Um, that listeners will uh, be as in awe of my voices as as I am when they hear the piece. I will say that at Kansas City, I had lots of people come up to me afterwards and tell me how affected they were mm. by, the, by the piece. It was, it was rather different from most of the things that were heard that mm. day. Well, it is a powerful piece, so I look forward to our listening to it as well. Uh, voices are important, as you say, and the variation creates a kind of another kind of weaving or tapestry that you put together. Is 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 that in your mind when you think who's going to be reading these particular parts? Do you know how they they fit together in your head? It's it, it's interesting how we program. I do most of the programming, but uh, we've also had lots of suggestions from the cast, like uh, Tony Brewer, Joan Hawkins, Frank Buzzelich, have all made uh, good suggestions. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at literature that's globally diverse. We do a lot of literature and translation. We uh, look at literature at one time you would say was marginalized. Now, since the literary canon has been uh, expanded over the last 30, 40 years, uh, maybe not so marginalized now, but 
we think of ourselves as a caravan because it, it's a journey. It's a journey of discovery. We like to look at works that uh, maybe you haven't heard of by writers you haven't heard of or minor works by major authors. Um, but I don't think of literature as a solitary pursuit, mm-hmm. um, as something that you do in isolation by yourself or sedentary. It's, it's something that really takes you places, mm-hmm. uh, to, to times and places that you otherwise, you know, couldn't get to. Right. I mean, and I also think of what we, what we do with audio storytelling as actually at a time when there's a profound shift going on um, in how we experience verbal artistry uh, because of, because we're in a post-literate age. You know, we're seeing something that's as dramatic as when the Homeric epics were written. And, and when you study the Iliad and Odyssey, uh, you're taught uh, how they represent elements of the oral tradition, but also the way in which they're arranged and the characters are developed. Um, you can only do that when you start to write things down. So so now we're we're getting away from writing things down, mm-hmm. and uh, the internet forces us to sort of um, listen and and look at literature in a different way. Forces the wrong word. Uh, it's 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 scary and uh, also exciting. Mm, force might be the right word. <laughs> uh, this is Doug Stormont Interchange. My guest is Cynthia Wolf, audio arts producer for Loose Lip Media and director of a troupe of audio performers called, and you would say producer of that troupe, I suppose, uh, audio performers called Cricket's Bone Caravan. Um, Cynthia, so you were talking there, and this is a good this is a good uh, topic, I think, uh, it, for me as well, because I read um, probably more than I ever have, mm-hmm. uh, but it's all in a hurry usually mm-hmm. it's it's with less depth than i would have like like to have it and it's it's the transfer to audio for me that's actually given me more depth in exactly. in understanding in hearing uh in in the ability to listen now, i don't know where that i don't know the the crossover to that now i was talking about this american life earlier and uh, radio lab these things are kind of like to me they're like news programs that are there just to kind of entertain you. They're fuzzy. They're they're candy coated. Usually, they might be a little hard hitting sometimes, and they sometimes give you some false sense of of um, final knowledge. Like you know, this is closure the, this, and affirmation. It, yeah, this is what happens as part of the template mm-hmm. to the program, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm against that usually, mm-hmm. right? I think it's a manipulation of me as a listener, mm-hmm. and and so I really appreciate the work you do because it leaves me in a sort of suspended state of trying to figure out what's going. Yes, we do like to present the works themselves in as large a chunk as possible. I don't like to do excerpts. I like to do the whole work if I can. Um, We have had, and and with your involvement in the program, um, we've had interviews for particularly difficult subjects, Mm -hmm. like racism in beloved authors, like Louisa May Alcott was an example. but I don't like to dictate too strongly how people hear the pieces. And I, 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 I like to give them enough background information that um, they know that this has come out of a particular milieu, um, but not so much interpretation that it's not something they're constructing for themselves. And I actually 
yeah, I don't really like to talk about what I think the work means. Right. It, it should come across in the way I put it together mm-hmm. and the way these wonderful people read it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Nuclear Nightingales before okay. we go to a break and then listen to it so we can sort of set it up a little bit right now or talk a little bit about mm-hmm. the, the book it's based on or I guess talk about the two parts together. Well, well the two parts together are, are important. Uh, both parts were titled Nuclear Nightingales. The first part was a short story by Jim Shepard. And so the second part was um, Voices from Chernobyl by Svetlana Alexievich. Um, the two pieces are meant to complement each other in looking at how storytelling shapes our perceptions of what truth is. Um, Shepard's story is a piece of historical fiction told by a single first-person narrator who is entirely fictional. But the story itself is full of technical details. It's very grounded in the realities of Chernobyl. Um, To contrast that, uh, Alexievich interviewed scores and scores of people whose lives were affected by Chernobyl, collected their oral histories over days or weeks or months or even years in some cases uh, to see how their perspective changed over time, and then arranged these artfully uh, to, to bring out the thematic resonance, and there are thematic resonances with, with Shepard's story as well. Uh, so so that's, that's what interested me, mm-hmm. was looking at how the very nature of telling a story mm. shapes the truth. And, um, Especially on a, like a past event like that, in terms, I mean, Chernobyl was at the 30th anniversary, was 2016, was, mm-hmm. so it was obviously a timely thing, but it was in studying... Her book itself, did it sort of prompt this idea, or what, did you come into it with that idea? I am not entirely sure how I first heard about the book. Uh, the, uh, what the hour-long episode, which is available at w, uh, WFIU's website, um, um, it's based on a selection that was published in the early 2000s in Paris Review. Hmm. And so that selection was not mine um, from the book as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what made it challenging to do the 22-minute piece, is that I had to think about how she had um, uh, made these monologues speak to each other. There's also in the first part of the program a sort of chorus. She calls them a chorus, where she has snippets from different voices hmm. uh, resonating with each other. So, um, hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure I answered your question. Well, that's okay. I was just wondering if the idea of the storytelling, how you, how, how the nature of fiction was prompted by looking at this particular event or these particular uh, books. Right. Well, I think the thing that resonates with the story with me now uh, that's present also in Jim Shepard's short story is um, uh, the way in which administrative incompetence mm. and then the bureaucratic compulsion to put positive spin on everything mm-hmm. – uh, shaped what was being told to people mm-hmm. and therefore made the disaster that much worse. Oh. And that, that that's going to come out in the piece that you hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, um, you know, I'm not anti-technology. Um, when people start, started first wiring houses for electricity, a lot of people were scared to do that. Mm-hmm. They thought, you know, they thought that was a very frightening thing to have wires carrying electricity through your home. You know, I love my electricity. I love my laptop. <laughs> so so I, I, I don't really view this as an anti-nuclear power piece, strangely mm-hmm. enough. However, 
I see it more in, in the context of, of climate change. Mm. That is, our t- how easily our technologies can get away from us if we're not fully competent in them, if we're not fully honest about what we're doing with them. Mm. Um, so it's that absence of honesty that concerns me in light of our current political situation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's time for a break. Our music is A Thousand Shoulders Tremble Under a Burden Actually Meant for One, part four of Songs of the Mouse People from the album Martin Bresnik, My 20th Century, here performed by cellist Maya Beiser and percussionist Stephen Schnick. When we come back, we'll hear Cynthia Wolfe's winning shorter edit from her two-part series, Nuclear Nightingales. Stay with us on Interchange. Support for Interchange comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of internet, voice, and TV service. Now also offering home automation and security systems for homes and offices throughout South Central Indiana. More information on Smithville's home automation service is available at smithvillesecurity.com. And support also comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976 serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe located in downtown Bloomington. More information available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back to Interchange. You're listening to, well, you are listening to Interchange on WFHB. My guest is Cynthia Wolf, audio arts producer for Loose Lit Media. That's your own production company? or Well, that's what I'm calling that's it what you're calling for yourself? future okay. hopes and Loose ambitions. Loose Lit Media. Uh, producer and uh, who performs and directs, produces a troupe of audio performers called Cricket's Bone Caravan. Uh, we've been talking about her work as an audio producer and editor, and in this segment, we get the special treat of hearing some of it. So uh, we went to the break talking a little bit about it. So can you set up this particular edit, Cynthia? Yes, this is a 22-minute piece that the Here Now Festival, which which you mentioned at the beginning of the program, uh, asked me to make from the hour-long version. Um, At the festival, they present uh, a day long of programming of audio programming in the setting of a movie theater Mm. so you get to hear your piece through the great sound system in Mm -hmm. a movie um, in a movie theater so um that was an interesting challenge and uh it was great to hear it in that setting what came across to me was again how these pieces all speak to each other mm-hmm. so we can talk more about that i think after we listen to okay, it sure um, I, I i should mention a couple of things yep. the uh the nightingales of the title are represented and we can talk more about this later as well but are rec- represented by actual thrush nightingales recorded in the chernobyl exclusion zone hmm. by the sonic journalist peter cusack who um 
who has a, a, a project called Sounds from Dangerous mm-hmm. Places. Mm-hmm. So these are actual Chernobyl nightingales mm. on the soundtrack. So we are going to listen to uh, this uh, edit. It's in two parts for us tonight. It's a 22-minute segment. Uh, we're going to listen to ten, about 10 minutes of it. Then we'll have to take a break and then listen to the other 10 minutes of it. Uh, and I'll, I'll let you know that you'll hear me in it as well. So well, That's right. Yeah, so here as it is. As the sort of yeah. newscaster. <laughs> right, <laughs> surprise. Not to speak your real name, bird, but those tombs over Chernobyl make visible your name that has never ceased to signal the harmony of the world. On April 29, 1986, instruments recorded high levels of radiation in Poland, Germany, Austria, and Romania. On April 30th, in Switzerland and Northern Italy. On May 1st and 2nd, in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Great Britain, and Northern Greece. On May 3rd, in Israel, Kuwait, and Turkey. Gaseous airborne particles traveled around the globe. On May 2nd, they were registered in Japan. On May 5th, in India. On May 5th and 6th, in the U.S. and Canada. The following voices represent the oral histories of individuals affected by the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986. They were gathered by Svetlana Alexievich, who, in 2015, won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Lyudmila Ignatienka, Zena Pagibshua Pajarnika, Vasilya Ignatienka. Lyudmila Ignatienka, wife of deceased fireman Vasily Ignatienka. We were newlyweds. We still walked around holding hands, even if we were just going to the store. I would say to him, I love you. But I didn't know then how much. I had no idea. They went off just as they were, in their shirt sleeves. No one told them. They had been called for a fire. That was it. At seven, I was told he was in the hospital. Many of the doctors and nurses in that hospital, and especially the orderlies, would get sick themselves and die. It was a special hospital for radiology, and you couldn't get in without a pass. I gave some money to the woman at the door, and she said, Go ahead. I come in. They're sitting on the bed, playing cards and laughing. He wants to hug me. The doctor won't let him. Sit. Sit, she says. No hugging in here. They moved out all the sick people from the floor below and the floor above. There was no one left in the place. He started to change. Every day I met a brand new person. The burns started to come to the surface. It came off in layers, as white film, the color of his face. His body, blue, red, gray-brown. He got so bad that I couldn't leave him, even for a second. He was calling me constantly. I wanted to do everything for him myself. If it had been physically possible, I would have stayed with him 24 hours a day. I couldn't spare a minute. 
There's a fragment of some conversation. I'm remembering it. Someone saying, You have to understand. This is not your husband anymore. Not a beloved person, but a radioactive object with a strong density of poisoning. You're not suicidal. Get a hold of yourself. And I was like someone who'd lost her mind. But I love him. I love him! He's sleeping and I'm whispering, I love you. Walking in the hospital courtyard, I love you. Carrying his sanitary tray, I love you. Fourteen days. In fourteen days, a person dies. Although the thing I remember isn't the grave. It's the plastic bag. That bag. At the morgue, they said, Want to see what we'll dress him in? I did. They dressed him up in formal wear with his service cap. They had to cut up the formal wear, too, because they couldn't get it on him. There wasn't a whole body to put it on. The last two days in the hospital... Pieces of his lungs, of his liver, were coming out of his mouth. He was choking on his internal organs. It's impossible to talk about. It's impossible to write about. And even to live through. They couldn't get a single pair of shoes to fit him. They buried him barefoot. The emergency commission met with us. They told everyone the same thing. It's impossible for us to give you the bodies of your husbands, your sons. They are very radioactive and will be buried in a Moscow cemetery in a special way. And you need to sign this document here. If anyone got indignant and wanted to take the coffin back home, they were told that the dead were now, you know, heroes. And that they no longer belonged to their families. They were heroes of the state. They belonged to the state. In Kiev, they gave me an apartment. It's a big apartment with two rooms. The kind Vasya and I had dreamed of. There are many of us here, a whole street. These people worked at the station their whole lives. They have bad diseases. They're invalids. But they don't leave their jobs. Often they die. In a minute. They just drop. Someone will be walking, he falls, goes to sleep. He was carrying flowers for his nurse, and his heart stopped. They die, but no one's really asked us. No one's asked what we've been through, what we saw. No one wants to hear about death, about what scares them. But I was telling you about love about my love. Arkady Filin, Liquidator. Arkady Filin, Liquidator. I was thinking about something else then. You'll find this strange, but I was splitting up with my wife. They came suddenly, gave me a notice, and said, there's a car waiting downstairs. 
The guys who came for me were in street clothes, but they had a military bearing, and they walked on both sides of me, clearly worried I'd run off. But my wife had left me, and, and I could only think about that. I tried to kill myself a few times. I told you. There's nothing heroic here, nothing for the writer's pen. I had thoughts like, it's not wartime, why should I have to risk myself while someone else is sleeping with my wife? To be honest, I didn't see any heroes there. I also have medals and awards, but that's because I wasn't afraid of dying. I didn't care. It was even something of an out. They'd have buried me with honors and the government would have paid for it. We lived in the forest in tents 20 kilometers from the reactor. You immediately found yourself in this fantastic land where the apocalypse met the Stone Age. We were between 25 and 40. Some of us had university degrees or vocational technical degrees. For example, I am a history teacher. Instead of machine guns, they gave us shovels. We buried trash heaps in gardens. We had gloves, respirators, and surgical robes. The sun beat down on us. We showed up in their yards like demons. The old women would cross themselves and say, Boys, what is this? Is it the end of the world? Maybe that's enough. I know you're curious. People who weren't there are always curious. One guy got scared, refused to leave the tent, slept in his plastic suit. Coward. He got kicked out of the party. He'd yell, I want to live! Every day they brought the paper. I'd just read the headlines. Chernobyl, a place of achievement. The reactor has been defeated. Life goes on. We were told that we had to win. Against whom? The atom? Physics? The universe? Our political officer read notices in the paper about the fact that just four days after the catastrophe, the red flag was already flying over the fourth reactor. It blazed forth. In a month, the radiation had devoured it. So they put up another flag, and in another month they put up another one. I tried to imagine how the soldiers felt going up on the roof to replace that flag. These were suicide missions. But the thing is, if they'd given me the flag then and told me to climb up there, I would have. Why? I can't say. I wasn't afraid to die then. My wife didn't even send a letter. In six months, not a single letter. Want to hear a joke? This prisoner escapes from jail and runs to the 30-kilometer zone in Chernobyl. They catch him, bring him to the Geiger counters. He's glowing so much they can't possibly put him back in prison, can't take him to the hospital, can't put him around people. Why aren't you laughing? This is Interchange on WFHB. We need to take a quick break, and we'll return to Cynthia Wolfe's Nuclear Nightingales, Voices of Chernobyl, when we return.
This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville, Community Radio for South Central Indiana, online at wfhb.org. It's 6.04 p.m. and 83 degrees. Tonight, clear skies, a low of 62 degrees. Tomorrow, a high of 89 degrees under intervals of clouds and sunshine. Wednesday night, mostly cloudy skies, followed by some late thunderstorms a low of 73 degrees for Wednesday evening. And on Thursday, thunderstorms continue, a high of 80 degrees, a low of 67 degrees overnight. Keep it right here at FHB. Interchange is coming right back. Welcome back to Interchange. Uh, Again, we're listening to Cynthia Wolfe's edit of her long-form program, Nuclear Nightingales. It was in two parts on WFIU's anthology. This is an edit of the section uh, or the program Voices of Chernobyl. We listened to the first part earlier, and this is the last 10 or so minutes of Voices of Chernobyl. Zoya Danilovna Brook, Inspector Ochrane Prirody. Zoya Danilovna Brook, Environmental Inspector. I worked at the Inspection Center for Environmental Protection. We were awaiting some kind of instructions, but we never received any. They had protocols written up for burying radioactive earth. We buried earth in earth. Such a strange human activity. According to the instructions, we were supposed to conduct a geological survey before burying anything to determine that there was no groundwater within four to six meters of the burial site. We also had to ensure that the depth of the pit wasn't very great and that the walls and bottom of the pit were lined with polyethylene film. That's what the instructions said. In real life, it was, of course, different. As always, there was no geological survey. They'd point their fingers and say, dig here. The excavator digs. How deep did you go? Who the hell knows? I stopped when I hit water. They were digging right into the water. They're always saying, the people are holy. It's the government that's criminal. Well, I'll tell you a bit later what I think about that, about our people, and about myself. My longest assignment was in the Krasnopolsk region, which was just the worst. Then I went to the military people. They were young guys, spending six months there. Now they're all awfully sick. They gave me an armored personnel carrier with a crew. No, wait, it was even better. It was an armored exploratory vehicle with a machine gun mounted on it. It's too bad I didn't get any photos of myself in it, on the armor. Like I said, it was romantic. The ensign who commanded the vehicle was constantly radioing the base. Eagle, Eagle, we're continuing our work. We're riding along, and these are our forests, our roads but we're in an armored vehicle. The women are standing at their fences and crying. They haven't seen vehicles like this since the war. They're afraid another war has started. We run into an old lady. Children, tell me, 
Can I drink milk from my cow? We look down at the ground. We have our orders. Collect data, but don't interact with the local population. Finally, the driver speaks up. Grandma, how old are you? Oh, more than 80. Maybe more than that. My documents got burned during the war. Then drink all you want. I understood, not right away, but after a few years, that we all took part in that crime, in that conspiracy. People turned out to be worse than I thought they were. And me too. I'm also worse. Now I know this about myself. Of course, I admit this, and for me, that's already important. But again, an example. In one kolkhoz, there are, say, five villages. Three are clean, two are dirty. Between them, there are maybe two or three kilometers. Two of them get graveyard money, and the other three don't. Now, the clean village is building a livestock complex, and they need to get some clean feed. Where do they get it? The wind blows the dust from one field to the next. It's all one land. In order to build the complex, though, they need some papers signed, and the commission that signs them, I'm on the commission. Everyone knows we can't sign those papers. It's a crime. But in the end, I found a justification for myself, just like everyone else. I thought, the problem of clean feed is not a problem for an environmental inspector. Victor Latoun, photograph. Victor Latoun, photographer. Not long ago, we buried a friend of mine who'd been there. He died from cancer of the blood. We had a wake, and in the Slavic tradition, we drank. Then conversations began until midnight. First about him, the deceased, but after that, it was once more about the fate of the country and the design of the universe. Will Russian troops leave Chechnya or not? Will there be a second Caucasian war? Has it already started? About the English royal family and Princess Diana. About the Russian monarchy. About Chernobyl. The different theories. Some say the aliens knew about the catastrophe and helped us out. Others that it was an experiment and soon kids with incredible talents will start to be born. Or maybe the Belarusians will disappear like the Scythians, Sarmats, Kimarais, Wasteks. We're metaphysicians. We don't live on this earth, but in our dreams, in our conversations, because you need to add something to this ordinary life in order to understand it, even when you're near death. Vladimir Matveyevich Ivanov, бывший первый секретарь Тавгородского райкома партии. Vladimir Matveyevich Ivanov former first secretary of the Stavgorod Regional Party Committee. I'm a product of my time. I'm a believing communist. Now it's safe to curse at us. It's fashionable. All the communists are criminals. Now we answer for everything, even the laws of physics. The papers write that the communists fooled the people, hid the truth from them, but we had to. We got telegrams from the Central Committee from the regional committee telling us, you have to prevent a panic. What if I declared then that people shouldn't go outside? They would have said, you want to disrupt May Day? It was a political matter. They didn't understand that there really is such a thing as physics. 
there is a chain reaction, and no orders or government resolutions can change that chain reaction. The world is built on physics, and not the ideas of Marx. But if I'd said that then? Tried to call off the May Day Parade? In the papers, they'd write that the people were out in the street and we were in underground bunkers. Well, the hell with them. The hell. I stood on the Tribune for two hours in that sun, without a hat, without a raincoat. And on May 9, the day of victory, I walked with the veterans. They played the harmonica, people danced, drank. We were all part of that system. We believed. We believed in the high ideals, in victory. We'll defeat Chernobyl. We read about the heroic battle to put down the reactor that had gone out of control. A Russian without a high ideal? Without a great dream? That's also scary. But that's what's happening now. Everything's falling apart. No government, Stalin, Gulag Archipelago. They pronounced a verdict on the past, on our whole life. But think of the great films, the happy songs. Explain those to me. Why don't we have such films anymore, or such songs? In the papers, on the radio and television, they were telling truth, truth. At all the meetings, they demanded truth. Well, it's bad. It's very bad. We're all going to die. But who needs that kind of truth? When the mob tore into the convent and demanded the execution of Robespierre, were they right? You can't listen to the mob. You can't become the mob. Look around. What's happening now? If I'm a criminal, why is my granddaughter, my little child, also sick? My daughter had her that spring. She brought her to us in Stovgorod in diapers. It was just a few weeks after the explosion at the plant. There were helicopters flying, military vehicles on the roads. My wife said they should stay with our relatives. They need to get out of here. I was the first secretary of the regional committee of the party. I said, absolutely not. What will people think if I take my daughter with her baby out of here? Their children have to stay. Those who tried to leave, to save their own skins, I'd call them into the regional committee. Are you a communist or not? It was a test for people. If I'm a criminal, then why was I killing my own child? Наталья Арсеевна Рослова, председатель Могилевского женского комитета «Дети Чернобыля». Наталья Арсеньевна Рослова, head of the Mogilev Women's Committee for the Children of Chernobyl. That great empire crumbled and fell apart. First Afghanistan, then Chernobyl. When it fell apart, we found ourselves all alone. I'm afraid to say it, but we love Chernobyl. It's become the meaning of our lives, the meaning of our suffering, like a war. The world found out about our existence after Chernobyl. We're its victims, but also its priests. I'm afraid to say it, but there it is. And it's like a game, like a show, I'm with a caravan of humanitarian aid and some foreigners who've brought it, whether in the name of Christ or something else. And outside, in the puddles and the mud, in their coats and mittens, is my tribe, in their cheap boots. 
And suddenly I have this outrageous, disgusting wish. I'll show you something, I say. You'll never see this in Africa. You won't see it anywhere. 200 curies, 300 curies. I've noticed how the old ladies have changed, too. Some of them are real movie stars now. They have their monologues by heart, and they cry in all the right spots. When the first foreigners came, the grandmas wouldn't say anything. They'd just stand there crying. Now they know how to talk. Maybe they'll get some extra gum for the kids or a box of clothes. And this is side by side with a profound philosophy, their relationship with death, with time. It's not for some gum and German chocolate that they refuse to leave these peasant huts they've been living in their whole lives. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We just finished listening to the platinum-ranked um, podcast that Cynthia Wolf produced. Uh, you won that for uh, at the Here Now Festival in Kansas City, Missouri this year. Yes, uh, the festival was, was really a wonderful experience. This year I went last year as well. They, they ranked all the pieces by platinum, and those mm-hmm. were the ones played in the theater, and also gold and silver and mm-hmm. bronze. So I was extremely thrilled and flattered to be up with... Uh, uh, the other pieces I heard in the theater. That's excellent. Uh, now, we don't have a lot of time left. We're going to mm-hmm. have to take a quick one more break, a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the piece. Uh, so this, uh, the music we're going to listen at the break is Jeki. This is a cut off the album Nemasini by composer and violist Lev Zhurban. Uh Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from Need More Coffee Roasters, a woman-owned coffee bar and roastery dedicated to roasting organic, direct trade, and fair trade coffee from small-scale farmers around the world. Located on Bloomington's east side at 104 North Pete Ellis Drive on the corner of Pete Ellis and Longview. More information online at needmoreroasters.com. And support for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976, serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe, located in downtown Bloomington. More information online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Uh, this is our last segment, and uh, we have been treated to the uh, platinum-ranked uh, podcast of Svetlana Alexievich's Voices from Chernobyl, produced by Cynthia Wolf and performed by Cricket's Bone Caravan. Uh, and Cynthia continues as our guest for this final segment. And Cynthia, there were uh, just a ton of readers in there, too. It's a short segment, right? And you've got a lot of the troupe in there, huh? I, I, I wanted to mention them in order. Uh, Berkeley Going. Uh, Phil Casper, Sarah Torbeck. Uh, about Sarah, I have to say that every time she reads something, uh, she brings out the moral nuances <laughs> of the piece that I haven't heard before. Uh, Frank Buzilich, who had the, the, the wonderful line, who read the wonderful lines about we don't live on this earth, but in our dreams and our conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, followed by uh, Tony Brewer, who I should also mention is the one who introduced me to the Here Now Festival. Mm-hmm. Tony is a s- live sound effects artist who performs naturally, uh, mm-hmm. nationally. And uh, Joan Hawkins. Then uh, the hosts were uh, Heather Perry and in Russian, Pavel Abramov. And uh, in the rest of the program, if I could just mention these guys sure. quickly, too, in the full-length program, because these are people who are also a regular part of the troupe, um, the wonderful Lauren Robert, um, Renee Reed, Michael Perry, Jack Connick, who has the scariest voice in the world, <laughs> um, Shane Lauder, Patsy Ron, uh, Mary Pat Lynch. These are all people who read with us regularly. There are others who have read on occasion that I know I'm leaving out, but I know we're short of time. Well, it's a great piece, and it's a great uh, it's a great way to, to like hear so many of the variations there. Uh, they they do a great job, and I uh, will. Particularly, I mean, I particularly like this part of what you do is that you introduce the, the, the actual language, the Russian language here with Pavel. It's just excellent. That last piece with Tony, uh, with Tony reading and I, Pavel. I, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad you mentioned that. I wanted to mention that Alexievich herself is Ukrainian, and uh, during the time she grew up, however, you were educated in Russian, mm. so she doesn't even write in her own language. So oh. one of the things I wanted to feel there with the Russian sort of bubbling up was... Oh language infiltration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like that so much. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I should also mention that Alexievich's literary agency was so wonderfully generous to give mm-hmm. us permission to use this. Oh, good. Yeah. And you said that was a, se- a selection that the Paris Review had actually published. Yes, it was, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's available online. Yeah, uh, I'll put a link to that so. uh, in the web post as well. Um, okay, so you also mentioned that these the, the nightingales, so the soundscape you've got there were actual nightingales or uh, thrush nightingales, you said? Thrush nightingales. And uh, the, the interesting scientific point is that uh, so many species have astonished scientists by repopulating the exclusion zone mm. uh, with, with genetic adaptations. So it's become this inadvertent and unwelcome laboratory for studying evolution and, yeah. and adaptation on a much faster scale scale than people thought could occur, which is one of the importance, importances of, um, of uh, Peter Cusack's project in recording the sound of these things as, as, as this is happening. Uh, the, uh, some other sound that you heard on that, but more in the, in the main program, all the sort of flapping, buzzing, electrical hum, those sounds are also from the exclusion zone. Mm. And they were recorded by a, uh, an artist named Felix Bloom, who just gives his stuff away for free on his website and nice. freesound.org. So. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah. Now, you had a clip you wanted us to play. Is that is that something we should do now? Yeah, I, yeah let's do that now. I wanted... Uh, I wanted to talk about sound as a form of, uh, not at length, obviously, but sound as a form of storytelling. And one of the things that, that that's interesting to me is how we take this physical thing of sound and turn it into meaning. And that's why I like having the languages in there. Uh, I like having the bird song, the animal sounds, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and just plain noise. And this is uh, just a 30-second clip of a piece by um, Elsa... <clears throat> excuse me, Elsa Langford, hmm. um, and uh, it's called Regrowing Cities, and it's just a snippet. Uh, it grew, she says, from her dislike of lawns, which I share, <laughs> and and so it's this sort of symphony of sound. I'm not going to say more about it till we hear it. Okay, let's go ahead, Jen.
So Elsa does soundscapes, uh, 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 urban soundscapes, and as as a sort of as she puts it, a measurement of life in a neighborhood, mm. and she puts them together in a way that I would consider symphonic. Symphonic. So you have lawn mowers or leaf blowers, and and then also the sounds of nature as nature attempts to sort of reclaim its right. place. Right. Um, so so the festival organizers put that. Piece, which was several minutes long ne- next to mine, and I, I, I really thought that was a, a, mm. a good juxtaposition. But I'm fascinated by how we turn sound into meaning. Mm. Well, it's a hard thing to imagine, you know, trying to understand the meaning that we might share, right, if, if there's no, uh, you know, cues to meaning in a mm-hmm. sense, right? Mm-hmm. That's just and that's a, what yeah. fascinated, me, fascinated me about Elsa's piece is that there was a story told there with no words, mm. only with things we would normally call noise. Right, right. Oh, <laughs> so, I'll have to listen to that one. That's uh, also on the Here Now uh, website next to yours? Uh, yes, it's it's on the podcast, the mm-hmm. podcast Palooza Listening. Okay. So I, I mentioned why we're talking about sound. Uh, also, uh, since we don't currently have a radio show, uh, last fall we had the opportunity to do our first live performance, mm-hmm. thanks to um, Peter Lopalato and the... Um, um, uh, writers Halloween Film Fest. Mm-hmm. So, so that was a, a multimedia performance, and we're looking forward to uh, doing more of those. We're going to be. Um, this will come as news to some of the members of the troupe, <laughs> since I haven't actually organized this yet. But we're going to be doing a spot um, at Four Street Festival on the Spoken Word stage, oh, and great. I've adapted a couple of short Spanish language plays that were uh, translated by on uh, by uh, Words Without Borders. Mm, nice. So that's exciting. Well, uh, you know what? Uh, it struck me uh, as, as, I think it's Tony's sec- section, and you were talking about um, uh, uh, global warming and how mm-hmm. these, these things uh, run up uh, against each other in, in, your, in your imagining and your presentation here. Uh, but I was just reading about, because it's hard to stay off the global warming web pages sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, they suck you in and leave you in a mode of despair for for several days, but I was just listening, or excuse me, uh, reading uh, a paper uh, by Phil Garnett, who in 2009 basically said conservation of energy doesn't matter. It actually makes things worse because that you double down on energy use once you become more efficient at not using energy. It's really interesting, but it was a physics paper. It was a, mm-hmm. He's an astrophysicist, mm-hmm. and he said these things are feedback cycle mm-hmm. loop things, and it's all about the physics. We only use X amount of energy because we can via these, these elements, right? So That's it's not about the ideologies yeah. that we're talking about. It's about the physics that it's we need to take It's an interesting point about, about human nature. Yeah. yeah. And I have to say one of my pet peeves is to say that we're uh, going to destroy the planet or save the planet. The planet will be just fine. <laughs> what we're destroying is the habitable environment for us and yeah. similar species. So, again, that's why the nuclear nightingales were so fascinating to me. Uh, I don't want to say that they represent some kind of hope or optimism. Um, because it's not that. It's something more unsettling. Um, but there is life in the exclusion zone. The fact that life comes back, right? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we were going to do another piece um, that was uh, a poem by Lu Xia, who is the wife of Lu Xiaobo, Xiao who is the uh, Chinese dissident who... and. No, is he a Nobel Prize winner as well? Uh, Nobel Peace Prize. Nobel Peace Prize winner who has just died not he, too long ago yes. in captivity in, yes. in China. Uh, liver cancer that was left apparently untreated. Yes, and we had a wonderful piece uh, with Patsy Ron reading, and alas, we have no time. We don't have time for it. However, it is a wonderful piece. However, you can hear it uh, in the Books Unbound episode, The Wild Pigeon. Very good. Uh, so so look that up. Please listen to it. It's It's yeah. got a Chinese reader underneath it as well. I've, uh, yeah. or, uh, actually, she 
reads a, she reads yeah. the poem, and Patsy Ron reads the poem as well. Plus, what else I should say about that episode is uh, I, I was interviewed about that episode in a feature for Radio Free Asia, and the interviewer, according to his research, said that was the first time that a work of Uyghur literature mm. had been broadcast in the U.S. Wow. So the Uyghurs are a, a, a people in an autonomous region. Uh, they are a moderate Sunni Muslims, mm. and they suffer a great deal of repression under Chinese yeah. rule as well. Well, you should listen to it. Uh, again, it was Wild Pigeon? Is that the, the Wild name? Pigeon. The Wild Pigeon on Books Unbound, WFHB. So that's going to have to be our show. We'll go out with Kong by, is it Ciro? Ciro Baptista. Ciro Baptista. This and this is, is off. Go I'm ahead. sorry, this Please. is what we used as our, our Quickest Bone Caravan theme song for our summer series anthology last Good. year on yeah. WFIU. It's uh, off the 2016 album Blue Fly. Thanks to Cynthia Wolf for joining us and for sharing her wonderful production of Voices of Chernobyl. Thank you, Cynthia. Thanks, Doug. For more of Cynthia's work, check out WFIU's anthology as well as many programs produced for Books Unbound on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Jennifer Brooks is today's board engineer. And Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.